So you have the outline there. Notice at the very top, let me start with the answer to the question that we're posing today. Last week, we asked the question, why care about the church? And we gave three reasons. One, because the church is God's plan to display or to reveal His glory. Two, because the church was the heart of Christ's mission. And three, because the church is on every Christian's heart. All right, so if you want to go back and listen to last week's sermon, that's why we should care about the church. Okay, so assuming that we are at least somewhat convinced or persuaded that the church is an important thing, what do we do next but say what the church actually is? So here is a meager attempt to give some sort of a working definition for the church. You have it there at the top of your page in bold italics. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, spiritually united to Christ and to one another by the Holy Spirit in a new covenant. The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, spiritually united to Christ and to one another by the Holy Spirit in a new covenant. JT started uh, our scripture reading today by reading from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is the passage that usually we refer to as the new covenant. This is the promise of a covenant in the future that God revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that we actually see being fulfilled in the New Testament. All right, so let me do this. Let me actually show you how some of these things that are laying in the Old Testament are picked up and carried over into the New Testament so that we understand that the things that we're reading in the Old Testament actually give us an idea or a concept of what God did in creating the church. So you see those references right under your definitions there. JT read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. What you want to do if you have your Bible with you is to turn to Luke 22, and we're just going to make a quick read and observation, and we may allude to these as we continue to go through. Luke 22, verse 20, this is Jesus in the upper room the night before His death. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper that we're going to observe this morning. And Jesus is recorded as saying in Luke 22:20, 20, we're told in the same way Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What new covenant? Well, I think Jesus would have His disciples and us understand that the new covenant that He's talking about is the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Confirmation of that, that what Jesus came to do in His death on the cross was to enact, was to cut and solidify and make effective the new covenant is seen in Hebrews chapter 8. So if you turn from Luke to Hebrews chapter 8, skip down to verse 7. Actually, skip down to verse 6. Uh, 
The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, 6, but now he, talking about Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Verse 7, for if that first covenant, and he's talking about the law covenant that was given to Israel through Moses, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, and then notice what you have is a quote of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." We saw last week that Paul said in Ephesians that the creation of the church was according to the eternal purpose of God so that he could display his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It was God's eternal purpose to create the church, and he creates the church on the basis of a new covenant that is first articulated in Jeremiah 31 that Jesus alludes to and says, the reason that I'm going to die, the reason that I'm going to give, pour out my blood is because my blood is the blood of that new covenant. And then Hebrews picks up that same language to say, this present reality, and we would say in our situation, this gathering of people here at the Edgewood Baptist Church is because of the new covenant that God has made in Jesus Christ, made effective for us through the work of His Holy Spirit. So the church is fundamentally a new covenant community that comes about because of the work of Christ. Notice though also, if you go back to the Old Testament, go to Ezekiel 36. If you know where Daniel is, you just go one book earlier, and you're in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26, talking about a future spiritual work that God would do for His people. He says this through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So Jeremiah 31 says what God is going to do, He's going to write His laws on the heart of His people. Ezekiel 36 says that he's going to give them a new heart. If I put those two things together, I think the way that those 
two statements match up is the new heart that God gives to his people in the new covenant is a new heart that beats for obedience to God's will. And then look at the way that this idea of God's Spirit being poured out is picked up in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1. Shortly before Jesus ascends, leaves the earth to return to His Father in heaven, we read this in Acts 1-4, gathering them, His disciples, together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, you heard of from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There it is. Ezekiel 36, this new transformative work that God is going to do on His people is going to be characterized by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, that is just around the corner. And when you turn the page in Acts to chapter 2, verse 4, Here's the fulfillment of that promise all the way back in Jeremiah and Ezekiel beginning on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2-4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Paul goes so far as to say, we don't have this reference in your notes, I don't believe. Oh, no, I'm sorry, we do. See, that's why I brought up your notes along with my outline. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 14 through 17. Paul builds on this idea of the significance of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people when he says in Romans 8, 14 through 17, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. So here's what I want to do then. I want to look at this idea that the church is a new covenant people of God. I want to take these statements that are made in, originally in Jeremiah and Ezekiel about God writing, rewriting the code in His people's hearts so that they beat for Him and so that they long to be obedient to Him. Statements that when God makes a people for Himself in this new covenant, He's going to give them a heart transplant, take out the heart of stone that is hard and callous and unresponsive, and give them a sensitive heart of flesh that can be pricked through conviction and bleed and be wounded. And I want to take statements about God pouring out His Holy Spirit on His people as a sign that they have been brought into this new covenant relationship. And I, want us, and I want us to look at what then does that tell us about what we talk about or what we ought to think about when we talk about the church. Let's pray. Father, help us to think right thoughts 
after what you have revealed in your word. We thank you for the scriptures that tell us not only what it is that you have done through your son Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit, but you also give us the ability to see the ongoing effects of that work in creating and building and sustaining your church. Help us, Father, through right thinking and submission to your word to come to a better understanding as to who we are here at Edgewood Baptist. And it's in the name of Christ that we ask it. Amen. All right. So in light of the emphasis on God's people being a new covenant people, the first thing that we want to take note of, you have there in your notes, number one, God creates the church through Christ by the Holy Spirit on the basis of a covenant. That should be obvious. Here's what, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read that statement with the emphasis on two different words. The first way to emphasize that statement in your notes is to say, God creates the church. You hear that? The emphasis is, is on who brings the church into existence. So if you have your Bible with you, go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Notice when you start at Hebrews 8.8 with the quote of the New Covenant, notice all of the first-person verbs and pronouns. That is, notice all the times that the Lord speaking says, I will do, I am going to. So, verse 8, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Who creates and brings about this new covenant people? God. Okay, good. Whew. I was hoping, I was thinking maybe we didn't stress it enough. Yes, God creates the new covenant people in our verbiage or in our language, God creates the church. You and I, we are not here this morning because we thought this is a good idea. Edgewood does not exist because sometime in years and decades past, a group of people got together and said, you know what we ought to try? We ought to try something like what people do when they do book clubs, or they have the Rotary Club, or they have a mom's event, or they write. So we need to do something like that, but let's make, give it a religious flair. That's not why Edgewood is here. That's not why any church exists. The reason that Edgewood Baptist 
or any other true church that exists in the here and now, the only reason that we exist is because God made that church. And He made that church by making new people. He makes new people by giving them new hearts. We do not create a new heart for ourselves. God creates a new heart for us. And that new heart gives birth to a new person, a new people that then God brings together in the form of what we recognize as the church. The church is not just a mere human tradition. The church is a divine institution. In the same way that we can say that God created life, that God created marriage, that God created governing authorities, God created the church. If God is the one who creates the church, and He does so on the basis of a covenant promise, we ought to take very seriously then what God has done in making this institution, this group, this thing that we call the church. If the church is brought into existence at the cost of God's own Son. We cannot think lightly about what we do as a church unless we think lightly about what Christ did to make this possible. That means that when we want to talk about what the church should do or what the church should think or what the church should be, If we're not starting first and foremost with who God says the church is, we are starting off on the wrong foot. It doesn't matter what I think the church ought to be. It matters what God says the church should be because I didn't make or create the church. God did. It doesn't matter what you think the church ought to be or what the church ought to do. You didn't create the church. God did. Now, in fairness, let's then also say the other side to that coin is to the extent that we rightly understand what God has done in creating the church and what God has created the church to be and to do, right, then it is important what we say and do and think about the church, but only insofar as our thinking and speaking and acting about the church matches what God has revealed. God has done this, not us. The other way to emphasize this first point in your notes, if the first thing is to weight it heavily on the front end, that God creates the church. The other way to think about this is to weight it on the next word, or what would that be, the fourth word? I don't know. Let me just weight it for you, okay? God creates the church. Put the emphasis there.
Why should we emphasize not only that God creates the church, but that God creates the church? You hyper-individualistic, anti-institutional, anti-authority Americans, why is it good for us to hear that God created the church? Because when we talk about what God has done in Christ through the new covenant, and we go back to Hebrews chapter 8, notice everything that God says that He's going to do, He says He's going to do for a group of people, not for a person or an individual. He's going to do it for a people group. Yes, yes, when God saves us, He saves us as individuals, as a person, but He saves a person to make them part of a people, and that's the point. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that all through Scripture, while God does do things at times uniquely with individuals, even when He works uniquely with individuals, it's always for the sake of a larger group, right? So, we just spent 10 months in a Genesis series. What does God do to indicate that He is establishing a new plan or revealing a plan to return His blessing to the world that He created. He takes a family under the headship of Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your wife many descendants. He works through a family. That family then grows into a nation. Israel is going to be my people. Not Moses, not Aaron, not Miriam, not anyone else that you could pick out of the group, although individually they are God's people, but more and more and more God is saying, you are my people. And you go to the New Testament, what does Jesus do? When He sets out on His ministry, does He do it in solitude? Or does He call other people to form a group with Him to accompany Him and travel with Him and speak with Him and learn from Him so that you don't have just Jesus off doing His own thing, although He would be more than capable of doing that. But you have Jesus taking 12 other men. He's got a group with Him. And outside of that 12, He's got hundreds of other disciples that He spends time with as well. And when he's going to start the church in Acts, does he start with one person? Far from it. He tells the twelve, or the eleven, to be technical, at the start of Acts, you wait for the Holy Spirit to come. But we read in chapter 2, not only is it not just the disciples and apostles, it's approximately 120 people that are meeting in the upper room, praying and waiting for God to pour His Spirit out on them. He does that, the church is, being, is given birth, 
And the next major event, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, how many people are brought to the Lord in this new covenant community? 3,000. Now, oftentimes we read that statement, 3,000 came to the Lord, and we marvel over the fact that there were 3,000. We marvel at the number. Rarely, if ever, do we take time to think. I wonder if God was set and determined on making sure that His church was always going to be a people group rather than a person in isolation. Do you see? Always, always, always a people. God creates the church. And God creates the church. He creates a people who are a new covenant community. If the church, as a new covenant community, is going to be the way in which God most clearly displays His glory, I have to start elevating in my own mind and thinking the role that the church plays even in my own individual experience of salvation. A solitary, individual, lone ranger Christian is an anomaly, if not an outright contradiction of what God has shown us in His Word. Do you hear me? Let me go one step further, just in case you didn't hear me. If you, as a Christian, are not part of a group of Christians called the church, you do not even understand your own personal salvation, at least not the way that you should. All right, now understand, I don't mean that in any sort of a condescending or uh, hypercritical way, right? God is so good and patient with us. He takes people like me and like you who are bent in this cultural stream that we swim in to think in terms of the individual and the person and my rights and autonomy and all that. And he patiently brings us back to his word to say, okay, but Merritt, if that's where your focus is, look at all the stuff that you're missing. You're not really tapping into all that this Christian life is if you think you tap into it on your own. God is patient to enable us to see that. That's what he's doing right now, by the way. This series on the church is God in his grace and mercy through his word saying, people of Edgewood, think more carefully about what I have done in creating this church body and what I am doing ongoing in this church body. This church is bigger than any one person. This church does not rise and fall on any one person. I don't care how gifted they are. This church is a small sampling of the people of God that He creates. Number two. It's important not to miss the fact that because God is the one who creates the church... And he does that through the work of Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that what we are acknowledging is that the church is fundamentally a spiritual people. 
at its core, at our core identity as a church, we are claiming that we have been made new spiritually, not physically. We are saying that the reason that we gather here is because God has placed His Spirit within us, and His Spirit is what draws us together on a Sunday morning. If the church is a unique work of God that God and only God can create, He makes you part of the church. You don't make yourself part of the church. If the church is primarily a spiritual people, we need to be very, very careful that we do not assume that we are in the church or part of the church merely because of our proximity or participation in a local body. You know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is just simply because you are near the church does not mean that you actually are the church. Just because you rub shoulders with God's new covenant people, that in and of itself does not mean that you are one of God's new covenant people. You can get the water. You can get dunked. The sign of God's new covenant and not be part of God's new covenant people. Later on, you can participate in the Lord's Supper. You can taste, you can see, you can smell, you can consume, you can have these elements go into you but not be in Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to see this idea illustrated. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 and follow along with me. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased." for they were laid low in the wilderness. Verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's writing to a church in the city of Corinth or perhaps a group of churches. And ultimately what he's going to be getting to is the way that they conduct themselves in the Lord's Supper. He starts by telling them, Corinthian Christians, Corinthian church, be very, very careful that you don't assume that you're in just because of how close you are to the Lord. 
Look at Old Testament Israel. That was a group of people who could actually quantify how close they were to the Lord. You go out to Benjamin or Jacob or, I don't know, any other good upstanding man in the Israelite camp in the wilderness, and you ask them, how close are you to the Lord? And they would say, uh, about a hundred yards. There he is over there. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Hey, how do you know, Benjamin, that you're part of God's people? Oh, well, I walked with God's people when he parted the Red Sea. Oh, I enjoyed the miracles that God did for his people. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm in. I tasted this. I saw that. I experienced this. I see God over there. And at the end of the day, the Lord says, you never knew me. Jesus picks up on that same idea. Many will come to me in that day and will say, Lord, didn't we do all these things? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. The church is a spiritual reality, which means that what is most important for us who claim or identify ourselves as being part of the church is not merely to be able to point to a street address to say, that's where my church is. It's not enough to say, here's how often I attend. Here's how well I can explain the Scriptures. You need to know, we need to know and understand that being part of the church is first and foremost, above everything else, is a spiritual reality that ushers into physical displays. And you can do the physical displays and not have the inner spiritual reality. I hope that is not the case for anyone who's sitting in this room today. But listen, listen, if that may be you, let me say to you, actually being in a church gathering without being part of the church because you lack any sort of spiritual transformation, lacking that spiritual reality and transformation, you being in a church gathering can be one of the most dangerous places in the world for you to be. It can be life-saving. It can be the best place for you to be. But it can also be extremely dangerous because you can begin to develop the mindset that I look like and sound like and act like all these other people who claim to be the church of God. That must mean that I'm the church of God. And at the end of the day, you've got no spiritual, miraculous change of heart that God has worked about by His covenant promises through the death of Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit, and you'll stand before your Creator and King, and He'll say, I never knew you. You were there physically. There was no spiritual reality. Which brings us to point number three. Because the church is a spiritual reality... Because we are fundamentally a spiritual people who nevertheless do things physically or our, the spiritual reality is displayed in physical ways, there is a tension that exists 
through Scripture where we would acknowledge that the church is both invisible and visible. Invisible and visible. So, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Pick up at verse 22 and listen to the heavenly, spiritual, immaterial kind of language that's used here in talking about the church. Hebrews 12, 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Anyone here seen any of that lately? Anyone come in on Sunday morning here at Edgewood Baptist and say, holy cow, all of a sudden I'm seeing myriads and myriads. I'm seeing departed souls. I'm seeing every single person who is in Christ. I, do you see that when you come in on Sunday morning? I'm hoping most of you say no. If you think you do, wait, wait around after the service. We need to talk. Right? We, we don't see this. In part, the very reason that we don't see this is why we come together on a Sunday morning, because we are wanting to act on or display what we believe to be going on by faith in the heavenly realm. We know that all of the redeemed who are in the presence of the Lord are praising Him. What do our hearts long to do? We want to praise. I'm not there yet, so I'll do the next best thing, and I'll gather with His people here to praise here like they do there. Do you, do you see? What, what are people... What is the church, the people that God has redeemed in Christ, what are they doing in addition to praising the Lord, singing His praises? They are seeing and hearing the Word of the Lord that never fades, that never goes away. And I come and I say, I want that. I want to hear the Lord speak. I want to hear wisdom and truth. I don't hear that yet. So I'll do the next best thing. I'll come here with God's people here, and I will do visibly what I know is happening invisibly in the heavenly realm. The church is an invisible reality because you can't see the hearts and minds that God has regenerated by His Spirit, you can't actually see who it is that actually comprises the church, but the Lord knows every single member that belongs to Him. 
And the expectation is that every single member, new covenant believer that belongs to him is going to be recognized by gathering together with other new covenant believers to say, let's share in what we have been given by God in Christ. That means... That the desire that God puts in our hearts, because He transforms our hearts to make us new covenant people, it draws us into gatherings like this so that we sing together, so that we listen to God's words together, so that we pray together, so that we do all these things together. Because I want to experience new covenant realities, and I will not experience new covenant realities in the fullness that God intends unless I do it with you on Sunday morning. Point number four. The church is a people joined to each other by their union with Christ. If you have been united to Christ by faith, if you have been placed in Christ, you have automatically, de facto, been placed in the church. He does that, not you. What that means is that because all of this is part of what God does, that He creates a people for Himself that are drawn to Christ, and by being drawn to Christ, they are inevitably then drawn to each other, that means that when professing Christians do not come together, something is not right. God says that the church is the body of Christ. You tell me you love Jesus? You tell me you want to be close to Jesus? You know what you're going to want to do? You're going to, be, you're going to want to be close to Christ's body, which is His church. You tell me that you have been adopted into God's family. You know what you're going to want? You're going to want to be with your family. You're going to want to have a family meal together. Where are our brothers and sisters? Where are our brothers and sisters who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to love what Christ loved and be committed to what Christ committed himself to, who claim to enjoy the benefits of a new creation work through the covenant promises of God, why are there so many professing Christians who aren't here this morning? Why? Can I pause for a second? Any of you who are watching on live stream, I'm looking into this camera. I don't know what camera is on me right now. If, bear with me. If you're watching on live stream, you ought to be here unless you are 
physically prevented from being here. This is where you belong, not on a live stream. Those of you who are sitting in the pew here today, you ought to be here next week too. Right, please don't, please don't misunderstand. I, I don't mean for that to sound harsh or condemning or anything like that. I, I mean it in the most gracious, loving way that I can. If your heart has been made new and is in tune with the heart of Christ, this is where you get the heart of Christ. And I would plead with you if your heart, I'm not talking about perfectly, I'm not talking about with, with all the strength that you think it should, but if your heart does not in any way compel you or draw you, you don't find attractive in any way a gathering of God's people to sing together, to hear God's voice through His Word, echoing in your ears. If your heart does not resound or respond to any of those things, take that as a gracious warning and wake-up call that your heart is sick, but that God can heal it. And for those of you who are confident that you are in and part of the New Covenant people of God, listen, we all know that there are days when we would rather just stay at home. Right? One of the reasons that I love being able to sing in the sanctuary is because there, I probably shouldn't admit this, there are times, I'll just say times without specifying, there are times when I come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning and I'm just not feeling it. Anyone else been there? All right, you don't have to raise your hands. I, I know you've been there, though. I'm not feeling it. Okay, that's okay. All right, again, that just goes to show how fickle and weak my heart is. The way to remedy that is not to say, well, I guess if I'm not feeling it today, I might as well just go home and sit and wait until my heart does feel it. Oh, my goodness. That's never going to happen. No, you come as an act of faith and say that even though this may look normal or feel normal or sound normal, I know that it's not. I know that this is miraculous. I know that this people exists because this is something that God has done, and I want to be there. I want to be part of that. God, help my sick, weak heart to love more fervently the church that you have placed me in. Turn with me back to Luke, chapter 22, as we transition to the Lord's Supper.
Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. By the way, to eat this Passover with you. Take a guess, singular or plural? Plural. To eat this Passover meal, this supper, with you people before I suffer. For I say to you, I will never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Plural. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus does two things. One, well, he does many things, but at least two that we can point out here briefly. One, he desires to eat what will be the first new covenant meal with his disciples, and he wants to enjoy that with them together who represent the body of Christ that will grow and expand but he wants to share that experience with them because they all share in the new covenant that he is cutting by his own blood second he says I want you to do this in remembrance of me which has to imply at the very least that one of the reasons that he gives this meal to be enjoyed and taken together as a group is so that we can be reminded over and over again that we are a new covenant people. And that as I take it, I'm reminded myself that Christ has made me his. But you know what? I've got someone sitting next to me or in front of me or behind me who's also taking that bite and taking that drink. And you know what I'm reminded of? Oh, yes. They're part of that new covenant as well. I am him and he is me. And this is us. Sitting as a family remembering how it is that we were brought into existence by the grace of God, through the death of Christ, by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Men, if you'd come forward to help distribute the elements. As our men begin to make their way up the aisles, you have a pre-packaged little cup. The top layer has a little wafer on it. The second little piece that you'll peel back gives you access to the juice. If you'll just wait until we can all take it together.
let me say, as the elements are going around, because Jesus himself presented this meal, this, this ordinance as a covenant ceremony, our understanding of Scripture is that those who would be able to take part in this meal or enjoy it ought to be those who are actually members of the New Covenant community. So if, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not taken the sign of that New Covenant through the act of baptism, we would simply ask that you just refrain from taking the elements. That's not to embarrass you. It's not to shame you. If anything, I would hope that it would motivate you or appeal to your conscience as someone who is hungry apart from Christ to say, I want to be fed and to come to know how Jesus Christ is able to provide for your every spiritual need. Take a few moments to quietly reflect before we participate in the elements. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Take and eat, knowing that you are part of a new covenant community in Christ. Now, if you'll take the cup, take and drink, knowing that the new covenant that we enjoy was ratified by the very life and death of Jesus Christ. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask now as you prepare to send us out that you would do so with a new awareness, appreciation of the fact that we have been made new, that we are not our own, but we belong body, soul, and spirit to the God who created us, to the Savior who redeemed us, to the Spirit who indwells us, and that although we may look normal to the world around us, that we would know ourselves to be part of this new covenant people of God, to enjoy your blessings as you make them available in our gatherings together. Bring us back again next week, we ask, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Would you stand as we worship together to close out the service? I love to proclaim that redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever so happy, redeemed and so happy in Jesus, the language my rapture can tell, I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Blessed Redeemer, I think of Him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my. Would you sing it out? Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever. I am. Amen. You're dismissed.